Uh, just so that I can stay faithful to my colleague, I want to remind you about uh, Ash Wednesday <laughs> coming up. You know, Lent is a, a, an interesting season. It's the season that reminds us to say no to things that are normally easy yeses for us. And it's designed, really, to train our bodies, our compulsions, our inclinations, our longings to say no, even to some things that aren't, don't need a no all the time, even to some things that say yes. So here are some things that should get a yes. Yeah, we'll be experiencing that. We'll do that. We'll involve ourselves in that. And then, and then we say, no, but this is an opportunity for me to train myself to be able to say no when I should say no. It's, and it's so um, misrepresented these days. You know there's Mardi Gras going on. There's a day called Fat Tuesday. You know what Fat Tuesday is? Fat Tuesday is a great big binge because when, when on Ash Wednesday, when everything starts and Lent starts, you have to say no to all these things that normally bring you at least what we understand to be pleasure. We have to say no to some of the us's. So man, stuff yourself with as much of this sometimes unhealthy experience as you can now because Wednesday's coming, baby. Lent's coming. So let's go Fat Tuesday and there's the biggest party and more beads are thrown into the streets at the parades at Mardi Gras on Fat Tuesday than any other day. You know, New Orleans is swamped with people. Uh, Brenda and I own some timeshares, and not that I recommend those. We never, owned, we never bought a timeshare we didn't want to throw back at the people. But anyway, might as well use them, right? So I'm always trying to find a way to lock up uh, Mardi Gras with the timeshare in New Orleans. Do you know you have to wake up on the very first morning that thing is available to be able to reserve and be one of the earliest calls to even get it because everybody's trying to get uh, that condo locked up for that day or that week because so many people are converging for Mardi Gras, Priscini Lent, so that they can spend time saying a crazy, wild, unhelpful, unhealthy yes before the season of no starts. Yeses and nos. We are in this series talking about the well-worn path of Christianity and asking ourselves the question, what are some of the markers on this well-worn path of Christianity? We've called them cairns. Uh, a cairn, we've shown this most Sundays that we've been preaching in this series, this, this slide of a cairn, uh, a stack. And if you see that, you know you're on the right trail, even when the trail is a little bit ambiguous, a little bit hidden. And then each Sunday, we've reminded you of this definition uh, this clarification uh, that we're talking about with these cairns, these markers. These, they help us know that we are on the well-worn path because there's path after path after path, and sometimes they look like the right path. How can you be sure they're the right path? Because of the markers. The well-worn path toward becoming fully devoted, a fully devoted, lifelong follower of Jesus. And another marker today, in fact, we're going to move from this series, moving into the season of of Lent today. But we've really enjoyed preaching this series because we've learned so much and enjoyed it so much. This idea of, well, the old word is temperance. It's changed meanings over the years. I mean, the temperance movie at one, uh, movement at one point had to do with the uh, abolishing of uh, the freedom to drink alcohol, temperance. But temperance 
means much more than that. And most often it'll be translated in scripture, self-control. The ability to say no once in a while when you really should. Sometimes to give a no to something you want to give a yes to. Brenda showed me uh, early in my ministry as a youth pastor, 1978, I was a young youth pastor at Valley High Covenant Church. Jeff and I actually both, uh, him after, a couple pastors after me, but we both served that same church in youth ministry at different times in our life. And in 1978, man, I was a younger man and I had all kinds of energy and all I wanted to do was ministry, ministry, ministry. It was so, uh, I was so obsessed with it. I'd rather, those of you who know me will recognize the power of this statement. It's not hyperbole. I would almost rather minister than eat. I wanted to be, did you get that? Yeah. I just wanted to be around students and their parents. And I was going to give, give, give. Young pastor there at Valley High. And Brenda, we were newly married, just a couple years, and we had our first child, David. Little baby David. And here's her husband waking up before the sun, going to bed late at night, and everything in between was given to students. I was a young life leader for that campus. I was coaching football at Valley High School. I was ministering at the church. I was learning and taking in everything I could. And the youth group was really responding. It was doing well. And one time, my wife, as gentle as she is, came and said, we feel a little bit like we don't have you, really. If you know Brenda, you know that that had to get really bad before she would come and say that. We'd like to have more of you, your son and I. And I remember saying to her, this was a pivotal time in our marriage. It was an aha. I can't help it, honey. I just love Jesus so much, and I love kids so much, I don't know how to say no. And she stopped. It was like time stopped. The sun stopped. Everything stopped. And this little music went on like if this was a play. Da-da-da. And she looked at me and said, oh, you're really good at saying no, actually. Your problem isn't about knowing how to say no. It's about knowing who and what to say no to. You say no, she said, to David and me, every time you say yes to somebody else and then go give yourself to them. So you know how to say no. She said, when it comes to saying no, you don't have a competency problem. You have a self-control problem. Every single yes has a no in it. And every single no has some potential yeses in it. Let me give you a definition of temperance because that's what this Karen is today that we're talking about. Temperance, self-control. That's one of the markers on the path to true, authentic Christianity. Always has been. It's an ancient virtue. Always will be. Simple definition that we can use today of self-control or temperance. It's the willingness to kill every impulse that needs to die or corral it if it insists on living. But the willingness to address aggressively every impulse, every compulsion, every unhealthy longing in us that needs to die. And we know intellectually and spiritually that's just not a good thing. That thing that keeps tugging on my chain, it needs to die. 
But if it, if it refuses to die, at least then I'm going to corral it, insulate it, set it aside. It's been said by one person that temperance is the ability to say no thank you, even when every single cell of your flesh is saying, oh, please, self-control. Everything in you is saying, please, come on. Self-control is the ability to say, no, thank you, when everything in you is saying, oh, please, yes. Self-control, temperance. And it's one of the markers on the well-worn path to Christianity. It's presented as a holy virtue in response in direct opposition to the seventh the, 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 we're doing these in contrast to the seven deadly sins. So you have the seven deadly sins, and then you have the seven holy virtues that are offered for the church, for the ancient church, to contend with these seven deadly, uh, deadly sins. And this is in response to the deadly sin of gluttony. But in gluttony, primarily, we automatically go to eating, overeating, or, or maybe even over, overconsumption with food, with food or drink. But think beyond that, the idea of overconsumption, period, as the idea of gluttony. And it's presented in response. Here's Erte's rendering of this, the sin of gluttony. He has these pieces that represent the seven day, uh, deadly sins. It's the dismissal of self-control. It's the putting down of self-control. It's the unbridled practice of excess and or indulgence in anything. It's the unwillingness to say no to a longing when you know in your mind and in your heart that no is the right answer. And the longing comes and gluttony says, man, come on, baby. One more bite, one more hit, one more needle, one more outburst, whatever it might be in which we indulge ourselves. And let's come back to what Brenda talked to me about, this concept that there's a no in every yes. If that's true, then the art of saying no, think about this, the art of saying no, if this is true, the art of saying no and the art of saying yes are the same art. They're the same ability, the same practice. Did you get what she was saying to me on that day? You know how to say no, you just don't know who to say it to. You lack the depth, the character, the strength, the clarity to know Eh, that's my time I absolutely must be with my son and my wife because I've been ripping them off over and over and over again in the name of Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a, there's a movement that frustrates us amiss when uh, uh, people are taught in seminary, don't sacrifice your family to the church. What happens then is you often get very lazy pastors coming up and you can't get them to spend more than eight hours a day on a day off and every lunch has to be with their spouse, and every time the bicycle breaks, they have to run home, and all of you are trusting them to be here studying instead or meet, meeting you in the hospital. I'm not talking about that excess. I'm talking about the balance that I was needing to learn because I was involving myself in this unbridled indulgence, even, here's the key, even in something good that seemed Christian. And I needed to learn about Temperance. But if I knew how to say no, then I just needed to learn how to apply it in a different direction. That was the key. 
you know how to indulge yourself, you also know how to temper yourself. So the question was not for us today, do I know how to say no to the wrong things, but do I have the will and the power to say yes to the right things? And if not, how do I get it? And that's what I want to spend some time on. How do I get it? If you're in a 12-step program, much of this is going to sound familiar to you, some of the same words, some of the different words, but let's borrow from them a little bit because they're learning a lot about how to say no to the wrong things by saying yes to the right things. And it's okay for us to borrow from them because everything that's learned in a 12-step program is biblical and borrowed from the church, found its foundation and beginning of the church anyway. And here's the first point. Want to say yes to the right things, build this idea of temperance, self-control. First movement is this, to confess and yield. To say, yep, I am powerless before whatever this compulsion is, and some of them are huge, and some of them are almost acceptable. But in our minds, we know, no, that needs to be gone. That's standing in between the Lord and me, me going deeper with Christ. Confess and surrender. Admit that you're powerless over your addictions and compulsions without Jesus. There's no hope for me. And the scripture reminds us of that. In John chapter 15, Jesus is talking about the source and the expressions, the outgrowth from the source, the vine and the branches. And he said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Just like a branch can do nothing when it's detached from the vine, apart from me, you can do nothing. Confess that you're powerless. Cling to my power. 1 John 1.9 talks about this honest confession. God is saying, if you'll confess your sins to me, your shortcomings, your brokenness to me, in other words, agree with me that that's broken. That's something that needs a no, and you're giving it a yes. Then I'm going to step in and heal you, and, and we're going to move forward together. But if you disagree, no, 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 I'm going to stay on this path. I'm not going to choose the cairn of temperance, the cairn of self-control. I don't want to grow at all in that area. I'm just going to keep saying yes every time something in my body offers a new yearning to me, whether it's good for me or not. We can't move forward, God is saying. Confess your sins. Agree with God. You're powerless over them. Now let's move forward, Lord, together. The Catholic mystic Richard Rohr said this in an article on uh, contemplation. One of our members sent this to me this week, and I thought it was perfect timing. So the core task of all good spirituality is to teach us to cooperate with what God already wants to do and has already begun to do, the core task of spirituality. In fact, Rohr says, nothing good or life-giving would even enter our minds unless in the previous moment God had already moved within us. We're powerless without a recognition of the movement of God already. Confess and yield. When your flesh is saying, oh, please, and you really need to be saying, no, thank you, that's what to do. Second movement in building this cairn of temperance, this idea of self-control on the well-worn path to authentic Christian faith. So confess, confess and yield, then connect and encourage. Our 12-step friends remind us of the importance of connection and connection and then helping each other as we're stumbling or need uh, some help. Without people, 
your chances of success in growing in the area of self-control, of temperance without people, your chances of success are incredibly low. And that might be a little too positively stated. You have to connect. We keep telling you our words for it over and over as we're preaching is that we believe people grow better when they're connected with other people in smaller groups and you're moving forward uh, together. That's a positive thing. That's a good thing when you're doing okay, but that's especially crucial. You're trying to take on some things that have been tripping you up all of your life. Some of these unhealthy compulsions connect and encourage. Generally speaking, studies with Alcoholics Anonymous show that the more meetings one attends, the higher the, his, the higher the chances of his or her success for sobriety. And one of the marks is 300 meetings a year. Studies are showing 300 meetings a year is the minimum for moving to the level of, of much higher sobriety. I had a buddy, I still have a friend, and our friendship has ebbs and you know, it, it does well and it doesn't do well, but he had a saying that said, a meeting every day, but every hour if there's a way. A meeting every day, even every hour if there's a way. He depended upon a community once he was connecting with God, saying, Lord, I obviously can't win this battle. Will you empower me? I want to win it with you. You come and help me. And then he put feet on that by connecting with his community. They learned that in 12-step from the church. They learned that from the teachings of Christ and the modeling of Christ. A study after study, a recent study in 2014 that showed that increasing AA attendance leads to short and long-term decreases in consumption, of alcohol consumption that cannot be attributed to self-selection. So they worked hard to make sure this study took care of some of the things that could have corrupted it. The Betty Ford st uh, study that was recently done showed that the development of healthy friendships was critical to success in moving forward against different compulsions. Connect and encourage. But Scripture was teaching this long before 12-step was teaching it. In Galatians 6, 1 through 3, the challenge to when you see somebody who's stumbling, go, go over and restore them. The idea of you come over and you say, come on, come on, come on, come on. Oh, let's go. Carry them if you have to. I, I'm, I'm reminded of that story that Jesus told of a crippled friend that couldn't make his way to Jesus. So what did his friends do? They hoisted him up to the roof, dug a hole in the roof, and dropped him down before Jesus. And listen, church, let's be careful that we are protecting that element of the Christian community that allows people to keep moving toward Christ even when they stumble. Sometimes we see people stumble, and many of us have been trained this way in the church. Under the guise of don't compromise, we see people stumble falling across the trail, and what do we do? We kick them out of the way and kick them aside. Instead, what we need to do is say, hey, knock it off, man. That's not what we agreed we were going to live for. Now, come on, let me help you up. And we're going to go in. Ephesians 6 1 says, when you see a sister or brother who has fallen, those of you who are strong, Go and lift that sister or brother up, and you guys walk together for as long as you have to walk. It tells us to bear one another's burdens. James 5, confess your sins. We talked about confessing your sins to God. James 5 says, go further than that. Be in community. Connect and encourage. It says, confess your sins to one another. 
Now, don't just do that without vetting the people you're talking to. Not everybody's mature enough to hear some of the things you're struggling with. But find someone. Find some people. Proverbs 27 talks about that iron sharpens iron. All community language. Honest community language. Ecclesiastes 3, this idea that three strands is not easily broken. Community again. Connect and encourage. But where do you get the encourage part? One of my favorite texts when dealing with this subject is in Hebrews chapter 10. Listen to it. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the certain, uh, the curtain that is Christ's body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. It's all the foundation for, here I am, Jesus. Are you safe? Can I come to you with my brokenness? And he says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we, we, pro, uh, we possess, hope. For he who promised is faithful, and then this, and note how gathering together as Christians equals encouraging each other. They're presented here as synonyms. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Hold on to that. By not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging or spurring each other on to good deeds. Those are equal terms here. Encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. You want to build that cairn of self-discipline? Want to learn how to say no to things that deserve a no when every piece of your body and your heart and your habits and your longing are saying, no, say yes to this just one more time. Say yes to this again, again, again. Confess and yield. Connect and encourage. You know, at creation, God said that it wasn't good for human beings to be alone. And apparently, he hasn't changed his position on that. Got to be together. Have to be together. Without people, your chances of success are very low. And then finally, this. So we've got confess and yield. Connect and encourage the cairn of temperance to fight against the deadly sin of gluttony. And then this third one. This is the raw one. This is, this is the Marines. It's pretty simple. It doesn't work without the other two. But it needs to exist, and it's simply this. Fight until you win. Stand up, get knocked down. By the way, parenthesis, be a church that doesn't kick people to the side of the road when they get knocked down. Instead, be a biblical church that, like we're instructed to do in Galatians 6, goes and picks people up. Even when they stink and your own hands get dirty and it bothers your life and it slows your own walk on the trail down a little bit, you pick them up. Nobody's left behind here in the Christian church. You pick them up. Stand up, get knocked down, then get up again 
and then get knocked down and get up again. And hopefully the day comes when you aren't being knocked down anymore. You're doing the knocking down. But do not quit. One of my favorite statements, I use it over and over and over again uh, lately in this stage of my life, is this, because I've learned it myself. Ladies and gentlemen, there is something good waiting for you on the other side of not giving up. There's always something good waiting for you on the other side of not giving up. Spirit-infused grit is required to accompany faith when moving toward the cairn of temperance or self-control. Grit on its own will not make it, but it's part of the equation. It's on our own, we're powerless against our unbiblical compulsions, but we do make investments in our own victories. This is not a passive process. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 6, links perseverance to self-control. This idea of it, it, it's got to be worked out. You stay with it over the long run. Perseverance, self-control are linked in that text. Peter, uh, in, in his first epistle, uses this phrase that I love in talking about moving successfully against difficult things, adversity. There's this powerful phrase. You know, uh, uh, when, you were had to, when you had to go dig a ditch or you had to get someplace quickly, there's a phrase, you've probably seen it if you read your scripture, girding up your loins. It means you would take your skirt or, and you kind of pull it up between your legs and tie it right here so that you were not encumbered by whatever was clothing was hanging down. You gird your loins and you took off, baby. Gird up your loins, son. We're going to go herd some cattle. Okay, dad, gird my loins. <laughs> Peter uses that phrase to talk about what's needed if we're going to move forward successfully against unhealthy compulsions. And he speaks of girding the loins of your mind in order to have success. Grit. The renewing of our minds. And then 1 Corinthians 9, this one we have on the screen. Paul talks about this and compares it to the kind of discipline an athlete goes through. Do, not, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way that you'll get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training they do it to get a crown that will not last. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, he says, I do not run like someone running aimlessly or somebody beating the air. I do not fight like a boxer who's swinging punches and hitting nothing. No, I strike a blow to my body. It says, I buffet my body. I punch myself about the face, he says. I cause bruises. I almost break my own nose. Why? Make my body my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself might not be disqualified for the prize. You fight until you win. Victor Hugo called perseverance the secret of all triumphs. Look, do you want to finally be able to say no thank you when every unhealthy, unhelpful longing is hollering, oh, please, please feed me again, then you get into the ring with your most destructive hunger and you do not get out of that ring 
until one or the other of you is dead. You fight until you win. Confess and yield, connect and encourage. Fight until you win. A friend of mine a couple years ago recommended a book to me and he recommended this book and I thought, are you crazy? You've lost your mind. He suggested with some passion... Doug Stevens, what you know, someone that some of, some of you know, he's kind of a well-respected church consultant. He said he suggested that we that I read the uh, the story of Edward and Bella, the Twilight story, the the uh, vampire story. I said, man, Doug, you are out of your mind, man. Yeah, how many graduate degrees do you have? And you're suggesting I read this adolescent novel about vampires, but I was glad I saw it. I'm glad I read it because it talks about what we're talking about. What's a vampire's inclination to feed him or herself? And we all know how graphically disturbing it is when we think of them doing that. But this is the story of Edward and Bella. He's a vampire. She's not. And he, in this story, not only longs for her in the way vampires long for people, for nourishment, but also he's presenting, he's a hundred and some odd years old, presenting as a teenager in high school. And that's where they, they meet and they fall in love. So he's got the natural inclinations, of, trust me on this. <laughs> and you're saying, is this that time we're supposed to pray that you're worthy of our trust, you know? So he's got natural vampire inclinations, but he's also got natural adolescent inclinations, and he's actually falling in love. And he decides, man, I can't kiss Bella. I have to say no to any advances she makes toward me. Because for me to simply meet my own needs and inclinations would inflict upon her something she hasn't chosen. My bite means she becomes a vampire for life in this, in this story. So whatever you think about vampires or even about this illustration, there's self-discipline there. I'm not going to fulfill my own short-term needs and respond to my, say yes to something when it's something that should really get a no because it's not in her best interest for me to say Yes, Listen, I did some work on this earlier, and I just want to read a portion of, of this. When asked about this abstinence theme in her writing in the April 2008 issue of Time magazine, author Stephanie Meyer said, the books are centered around Bella's choice to choose her life on her own, and the Cullens, that's Edward's family name, the whole family of vampires, choices to abstain from killing rather than follow their initial temptations or inclinations. She said, I really think that's the underlying metaphor of my vampires. It doesn't matter where you're stuck in life or what you think you have to do. You can always choose something else. There's always the right path. Whatever our opinions about Meyer's work, we must acknowledge that she's correct about at least one thing. Regardless of where we're stuck in life, or which compulsion seems to be sticking us there. There's always a different path. There's always a different choice we can make in response. 
We can seek to kill any impulse that needs to die or corral it if it insists on living. We can choose temperance, self-control, by yielding and confessing, by connecting and encouraging, and sometimes by girding our loins, getting in the ring, and fighting until the thing that fights against us is dead. Says James 6, 16 reminds us, ask for, choose the ancient path. Look for the good way and walk in it. Stand firm, even with wobbly knees, and resist. That's the cairn of self-control, the cairn of temperance. Make no mistake about it. It always has been true for authentic Christianity. Today, maybe as much as any time in history, it must be true. Not everything deserves a yes. Some things deserve a hard, stiff, firm no. Let's pray. Now, O oh Lord, would you strengthen us Would you strengthen those, your wobbly need children? Give us success that our heart longs for, and when our heart has forgotten to long for it, put the longing there at least. We trust you to walk with us down this long path in the name of Christ.